The text from today is found in the book of the prophet Haggai, and we're going to observe the second chapter. This is the word of the Lord. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw in this house, who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet one once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second day of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people. And with, with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to heap, to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vats to draw up 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and, the, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots of their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord and will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I wonder when 
when were your glory days? I wonder if I were to ask you, most glorious season of your life, what would you point, point me to? Perhaps a college graduation or a recognition for a major accomplishment or perhaps the time you fell in love with someone. Do you remember fondly some church experience, perhaps a camp, a program, a relationship? Do you miss those days? Do you miss your days of glory? Do you sometimes wish you could go back in time and relive those experiences? I often do spring cleaning. I don't do it only in the spring. I do it usually four times a year, one for every season. And one day I was doing spring cleaning, and I found a bag with medals that I had won in high school. Those were my glory days. And I looked at those medals, and I looked at myself, and I asked the question, what happened here? Where did the glory go? Friends, we may have glory days. We may not have glory days in the past. But the encouraging message of Haggai is that as great and glorious your past may or may not have been, the glory of the Christian life is always ahead of us, never behind us. Listen to how the Apostle John explains this in light of Christ's return. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's glorious. And what will, we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That's a whole different level of glory. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. The glory of the Christian will be fully revealed when Christ finally redeems us. When Christ returns to collect to himself his bride. The Christian faith finds hope in the knowledge that we will prevail regardless of our current circumstances, regardless of how we feel today or in this season of life because, not because of our strength, but because of God's past faithfulness, his present blessing, and his future promise. And this is my outline for today. But before we think more about what our text is saying and how it's pointing us to glory, let's recap a little bit the background of Haggai. So this is our second sermon on the book of the prophet Haggai. Some of you may be familiarized with Haggai. Some of you may not. Uh, most people are not. Haggai is the third to last book in the Old Testament. And it's the second to, is the, uh, second to Obadiah. It is the smallest book of all in the Old Testament. Haggai, in this sermon, we're going to conclude a series, right? So I know we're going through Mark and we'll likely have 100 sermons there. Haggai, two will do. And that's good. Last week, I said that in order for us to understand the message of Haggai, we need to understand where Haggai is coming from. We need to understand the theological background behind the book. By the way, that is true of every book of the Bible. So I said that God gave Israel a set of laws that would ensure these laws, the keeping of these laws would ensure that Israel would live at peace in the promised land. Then I pointed out that at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, God gives his people, Israel, a set of promises. Some of them are blessings for obedience. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. But most of them are curses for disobedience. And the greatest curse of all is the promise that if you do not keep the words of this law, I will banish you from this land. As you may know, Israel broke the law significantly shortly after 
even these promises were made. They worshiped gods other than the one true God and practiced terrible social injustices. After centuries and centuries of patience and long-suffering, after God gave them the judges and kings and prophets that called them to faithfulness over and over again, God kept his promises. He judged Israel by sending them into exile. The city of Jerusalem, the pride of Israel, was destroyed. And the central piece of religious life in Jerusalem, the temple, was destroyed. So we saw last week that no temple, no presence of God, no blessing, no sacrifices, no worship, no glory. After 70 years of exile, a remnant of Israel was able to return to Palestine. But they came back to a city and a temple that needed rebuilding. And uh, though initially they neglected the rebuilding of the temple and they lived in their paneled homes, they eventually obeyed. Haggai, last week, called the people of Israel to faithfulness. And they responded. And remember, repentance, change is possible. So they began rebuilding the house of the Lord. And Israel could again be in the presence of God in his house. Now the main characters of this book are Haggai. Right? This book is titled after him. And Haggai is the prophet. And then there is Zerubbabel, who is the governor. We're going to finish today talking about Zerubbabel. There is Joshua as well. And this is Joshua the priest from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And then finally, there is the remnant of Israel. Really, the remnant represents us. It, it, the remnant of Israel here right, is not very different from, from, from the crowd in the gospel of Mark. It is, it is the people. They're observing. Uh, sometimes they're faithful, sometimes they're not. Uh, they need to be reminded. They need to be, they need to be uh, uh, told of God. They need to be pointed to the hope that we find in Christ. The remnant are folks that came back from exile to rebuild the city. It's about uh, 50,000 people. Now, that's not a very glorious number. And it's not a lot of people to rebuild an entire city, to rebuild a land that once saw millions of inhabitants. So the moral of the people was very low. And here's where we find ourselves today. A people that is discouraged because the glory of the house of the Lord once was great. But now, it has no glory. They're discouraged because the temple that Solomon built was famous in all the earth. And 400 years later, there's no glory. They lived in the past. They said, if you could only see what it was like. So we're going to see the prophet Haggai speaking three oracles to the people today in order to encourage them, to help them, to help them pursue faithfulness. And Haggai is going to point our people to three things. One, He's going to encourage them through God's past faithfulness. Two, he's going to give them hope through God's present blessing. And three, he's going to give them faith because of God's 
future promises. So let's consider first encouragement through God's past faithfulness. In verse 1, again, we see a date. Specific date in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. This is October 17th. Okay? Roughly three weeks after the people repented. And what does the prophet say to the people on this day? In verse 3, he asks the people, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? In other words, he's asking, Who was here before exile that saw the temple before it was destroyed? And so he asks, How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing? In your eyes? Is it not a glory that has departed? The people are discouraged because those who had seen the former temple built by King Solomon knew that this temple did not have the same glory as the former one. Wait a second. It's been three weeks. How much building could have taken place in three weeks? Why why is Israel so discouraged? Why is discouragement setting in so fast? How can you tell this place is going to be so horrible from a few bricks putting being put together? Friends, the reality here is that Israel's hope was so much in its past glory that Israel was defeated before the battle begun Israel was defeated before the battle began it's like a sports team that is going to face another team that has had no losses in their season and the team knows they can't beat that team that the team enters the pitch the team enters the field defeated and friends when a team enters the field defeated defeat is certain I think Israel's discouragement goes far beyond the lackluster temple that they were building. Did you notice how time is recorded in this book? Did you notice how time is recorded in the book of the prophet Haggai? In the second year of King Darius, Persian king. You know, when we see other accounts in the Old Testament... The time is recorded according to the kings of Israel. Once Israel measured time according to David and Solomon and all the great kings, now Israel doesn't even have a king. Israel has a high priest, but it doesn't have a temple. What is a priest without a temple? Israel has a prophet. But this prophet doesn't speak to millions like Moses once did. This prophet speaks to a few thousand of the remnant. Remnant? The people felt like they were just that, a remnant, a leftover. Israel is discouraged, and rightly so. Friends, we're not too different from Israel, are we? We're often discouraged. We're discouraged because we have too much. We're discouraged because we have too little. We're discouraged because we are too busy. We are discouraged because we have nothing to do. We're discouraged because we're hungry. We're discouraged because we're too full. We're discouraged because we don't even know what we're discouraged about. Why are we often so discouraged? Why is discouragement such a great part of human life? Why does discouragement seem to always be at the door? For the same reason that Israel was discouraged. Discouragement comes as we focus on our current circumstances rather than on God's faithfulness. Let that settle. Discouragement comes as we focus on our circumstances rather than 
on God's faithfulness. We change. God does not change. We doubt the future. But God orchestrates the future. He will accomplish all His purposes. And He promised that His people would see glory. He never loses control of the situation. Israel, do not look at your present circumstances for encouragement. Darius is not ultimately a king over you. God is. Look to the Lord. But how does God encourage his people? Look at verse 2. He says, speak. Speak, Haggai. Prophesy. Let my words be the nourishment for my people. Friends, if you aren't discouraged today, listen to God's prophetic word in this very book. As we preach God's word, God speaks. And as God speaks, we find encouragement. But what does God or what does the prophet tell the people? Look at verse 4. He says, be strong. He repeats it three times. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, O people. Just like God spoke to Joshua, isn't it? The Joshua from the book of Joshua. Be strong, be courageous. Then he calls them to work. And why should Israel work? Because God is with them. God will empower them. Verse 5, he reminds them, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains with you. Fear not. You know what God is doing here? He's encouraging Israel to trust Him in the present by pointing Him to old covenant language. He's saying, I am faithful to my promises. I have been faithful in the past. Trust me, today. I promised Israel I would be with them when I brought them out of Egypt. And I was with them, was I not? I promised Joshua I'll be with him as he conquered the promised land. And I was with him, was I not? If they could trust me, so can you. Friends, God's track record of faithfulness is still impeccable. He does not promise us an easy life, but He promises us that He will be with us to the end. Now look at verses 6 and 7. There God promises that He will shake heaven and earth and sea and land. He will shake the nations and they are going to bring their greatest treasure to this very temple. Glory is coming. In verse 8, he says, the silver is mine. The gold is mine. Why are you worried about the glory of the temple? Will I not care for my house? Will I not bring the riches and the treasures to my house? The nations are simply going to bring what already belongs to the Lord of hosts. By the way, did you hear how many times the word Lord of hosts is repeated? It's the Lord of the armies. The Lord that fights for his people. The nations are going to bring what, that, what belongs to him already. Well, what does God mean by this? He says in verse 9, Perhaps the most astonishing statement in the entire book, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So the prophet is prophesying about that very building. And he's saying this building that you think is look luster is going to have a greater glory. In the building your forefathers built. Centuries later in this temple, there would come a Roman king, Herod the Great, and he would refurbish this temple. 
He would invest so much in this temple that its glory would eclipse the glory of the former temple. The nations would bring forth their silver and their gold to the temple of the one true God. But, I think that's part of what the prophet means, more importantly, did you hear our scripture reading for today? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. This temple saw the glory of Christ. Jesus himself walked into the temple. The second temple saw God in the flesh. The second temple saw him in whom all the fullness of God dwelt. The second temple saw the fulfillment of its purpose in Christ. This is surpassing glory. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth, glory of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is the glory that the prophets point forward to. This is the glory that the prophets spoke of. It is the glory of Christ. It is the glory that we prayed about earlier today. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Friends, I wonder if you have seen that glory. I wonder if you've seen the glory of Christ. I wonder if you know Jesus and if you have experienced the surpassing glory of knowing Christ. I wonder if you know that he has died that you may live. Nothing that this world can offer you, no amazing career, no amazing relationship, no large bank account, no family, no fame, can compare to knowing Christ. Even the riches of the world will not compare to the glory of, going, of knowing Christ. To know Christ is to know life. Friend, if you do not know Jesus, I submit to you that you have not lived. If you do not know Christ, you have the illusion of a life, but not life indeed, but not life abundant. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that if you do not know Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You think you are alive because physically you are, but spiritually you are not. But Jesus died so that you may live. If you renounce your sins and you look for the surpassing glory of knowing Christ, trust in his death as a payment the price that you deserved friends you will live through him the matters of spiritual life the matters of eternity will suddenly make sense to you friends the call is for us to find the glory of christ and that glory is being proclaimed to you right now. Abandon every attempt to find glory in this life. To find glory in your career, in your family, in your relationships. Abandon every attempt to be known by the world. And pursue the knowledge of Christ. If you want to know glory... The world's glory will be ever elusive. If you want to know glory, Jesus is glory. Everything else pales in comparison. Well, now let's, con let's consider the hope that we are offered through God's present blessing. Now we arrive at a really interesting 
um, part of this book. It's going to take a little unpacking for us to understand. There is a shift. Chapter 2 started with a word of encouragement. Now, in verses 10 through 19, God admonishes his people. In verse 12, God tells Haggai to ask the priests, priests a series of questions, or two questions. So the questions are, if someone carries holy meat, so that meat that is consecrated to God, right? In the fold of his garment and touches with the fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Well, that's a pretty obvious question for a priest. Of course not. Things don't become holy or consecrated by coming into contact with things that are holy. Now look at verse 13. Here's a second question. Then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, so these things that are, that are um, this, this thing that he mentioned before, does it become unclean? Common things. This is an obvious question for a priest as well. And the answer is yes. Haggai is here challenging the priests with ceremonial law from the book of Leviticus. In ceremonial law, holiness is not transferable. That which is holy does not cause other things to be holy by mere contact. But uncleanness is transferable. He is getting them to answer really obvious questions to then turn the mirror on them. The question here really is, do you think this will be a holy temple if it's built by unclean hands? Do you expect unclean, common men with hands that are not consecrated to build a temple for God, and you expect that temple to be holy? No, because that which is unclean contaminates even that which is holy. So in verse 14, Haggai says, So it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. You see, Israel wanted a temple, but Israel did not want holiness. Israel wanted to be blessed, but Israel did not want to be obedient. And friends, holiness is necessary. Listen to Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness. And listen to this. Without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is necessary. Friends, though the truth may hurt, the truth is always better than a lie. Let this warning speak to our hearts today. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Without holiness, heaven will not be our final address. We could be sitting here today deceiving everyone amid smiles and Christian jargons. We could be walking step by step into eternity in hell. May that not be true of us today. Today we remember the words of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Repent and believe. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, let's continue halfway through verse 15. The consequences of the people building a temple without prioritizing holiness is here. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to, heap a, to a heap of 20 measures... There were but 10. They were not effective. They were not doing a good job building the temple. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. In other words, you're trying to build, a temp to build this temple 
but it's not working well for you. Now look at verse 17. The Lord says, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Do you see? The problem was not that they were not good builders. The problem is not they were not good engineers and architects. The problem is that the Lord was not blessing their work. Now, at this point, you may be asking, Pastor Lucas, why did you call this point God's present blessing? This does not sound like blessing at all, does it? It sounds like God is instead removing his blessing from his people. Friends, the the reality here is that God is not interested in a ministry that is efficient for the eyes to see, but that is filthy in the heart level. Friends, if our hearts are not cleansed by the Lord, we're going to try to make this church a great church, and it will not work. We have to come to the Lord. We have to say, Lord, this church is yours. Father, every ministry of this church belongs to you. Father, you are the focus, not me. Father, this is not about my glory. This is about your glory. Friends, this is a church that will be effective with the proclamation of the gospel. This is a church that will see lives transformed. This is a church that will see the sinner come and say, I want that glory because that is God and I need God. Friends, this is how we're going to, yes, fulfill the calling on our lives of carrying one another's burden and truly fulfilling the law of Christ because our desire must be always increasing for the glory of God and not our own. God is calling us to let go. God is calling us to say, it is not about me. It's about you, Lord. Help me serve for your glory. Help me serve. And Lord, may I be forgotten. May I not be remembered. May I preach the gospel, die, and never again anybody have a thought of me. But may your glory be known in all the earth. Friends, that's the calling of the church. That's our calling. Let us forget ourselves. Let us die to self and let us be alive for Christ. But it's interesting. In verse 19, God says, But from this day on, I will bless you. Wait, what? You just said so many hard things to your people, Lord. What do you mean? You just indicted the whole people. And we haven't even heard a word of repentance, although I believe repentance is implying here. What an abrupt shift. Shouldn't God say, I will judge you? Instead, he says, I will bless you. Friends, God's last word for his people is always grace. If you feel like the hand of the Lord is heavy on you and you're trusting in Christ, just know that his last word for you will always be a word of blessing. If the Lord is bringing trials and difficulties in you, it is for your good so that you can be blessed. The Bible says that he abundantly pardons When the prodigal son comes back home, the father does not make him go through hoops in order for him to demonstrate his repentance. No, the father runs to him so that he can be received. He can't wait to forgive his son. Friends, are you holding on to sin because you don't think the Lord will forgive you? Are you hiding in your uh, your unclean hands from God? who sees everything, don't cling to sin, cling to Christ. Run to God. Friends, one of the great evidence that someone is a Christian, okay, is that when we sin, we don't run away from God. We run to God. We know that in Him, and in Him alone, 
we receive forgiveness. Replace the false pleasures of sin with the deep joy of belonging to Jesus Christ. Finally, let us consider faith because of God's future promises. The word of the Lord came to Haggai one more time. Now he is to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Israel had, had suffered with the oppression of the nations around it significantly. If you read the minor prophets, this theme is there over and over and over again. But God promises to judge, to judge the nations for oppressing his people. The idea here is, they may be my enemy, but anyone who is my enemy is the enemy, enemy of God as well. And if God is for us, no enemy will prevail against us. Look at verse 22. He says, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And their horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. There is, there is going to be confusion among the nations. And this picture here of chariots and riders going down is evoking the picture of Egypt and Pharaoh pursuing the people of God, but being destroyed because of that. This is a good reminder for us Christians. We don't need to defend our cause. You realize that? So, so you realize that we are very different from other religions that have to defend the honor of their prophets, right? We don't have to defend the honor of God. God is pretty good at that. Uh, when, and when we think that he's not doing that, don't be mistaken. He will not delay. Because we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord, right? We as Christians, we don't need to look at those who are opposing us and fear them or even in, in some ways, defend ourselves or defend our cause. Why? Because those who oppose us have a greater enemy than us. That's God. God will deal with them. We must just trust. The Lord is our justice. Perhaps we are not surrounded by wicked nations today in the same way Israel was. Perhaps we are. But we are certainly surrounded by a, by a wicked society. To us, Jesus says, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Friends, we, we live resting in the sovereign promises of God. And one of the greatest promises from God in this book, we find in the very last verse. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. But who is Zerubbabel? Who is this governor of Judah? In this time, this title seems so unimportant. There are nations with kings all around, but Israel only has a governor. And what is the significance of this signet ring? You see, Israel, a few centuries earlier, had a phenomenal king. His name was David. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read that last week, God made a covenant with David. God established a relationship with David based on promises. That's what a covenant is. Promising that the throne of David would always be occupied by one of his sons. But as Israel goes into exile, this line of kings seems to come to a halt. Has God failed in his promises? This promise had become unclear to Israel. And the question is, is God faithful? 
Because at the end of the day, God is God if God is faithful. If God is not faithful, He's not God. But here, what God is doing with Shealtiel, with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, what He's doing is He's reaffirming that one from the line of Zerubbabel, ultimately the line of David, because Zerubbabel was in the line of David, would once again rule as king. A signet ring is a symbol of royalty. So Zerubbabel is given this promise that the royal line would continue. And this promise that someone would sit on the throne of David forever would be fulfilled. This ring is a reminder that God is a promise-keeping God. And friends, this is Haggai's word for us today. Are you looking at your life? Are you looking at your circumstances? And are you asking the question, is God faithful? And the answer is yes. He is. He's always been. And he always will be. The promise made to Zerubbabel was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The true son of David. God said this so that Israel would remember, I have not forgotten my covenant with you. Friends, God is not a forgetful God. He remembers us every day. The only thing that God forgets are the sins of a repentant sinner. But he always remembers his people. He knows you by name. Are you struggling to believe this promise today? Are you tempted to despair let Haggai's words encourage you not to look at your circumstances, but to look to the promises of God. Friend, walk by faith and not by sight. That's what we're called to do today. So, when were your glory days again? When did you live in such a way that you would wish you would live like that for all eternity? Whatever glory you have had in the past pales in comparison to the glory you will experience. If you run with endurance the race that is set before you today, trusting the God that is faithful. Friends, if Jesus is your Savior, your glory days are still ahead of you. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, how we need to be reminded of your faithfulness, of your promises. Lord, we are often so doubtful, so weak. But, Father, you are good. You are patient. You give us reminders. You renew your promises. You renew your covenants. Father, we are thankful for that. Father, we pray that Central Baptist Church would be a church that is characterized by a holy life that is aimed at the glory of your name. Help us, Father. We need you today. We need you always. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength. My song, canta filho. This cornerstone, this solid line, firm through the fiercest ground and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love, 
in righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Still on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of christ i live <coughs> there in the ground his body laid Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day. Out from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, where I am his. Mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. In life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath. Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his end. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll How are you, Sam? Good. Doing great. Can't complain. Oh. So that's not Nathan, but it looks like, isn't it Jesse? Jesse. We just, just like Nathan. Hey, Jesse. Oh, okay. 